You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Aaron. What a crazy chapter that is. What a crazy chapter. And there's so much here for us that I'm excited to get into. Uh, Crazy chapter, and we are still right in the midst of one of the craziest political boiling points of most of our lifetimes. On the one hand, there have been other low points in the history of America. Knowing history gives some optimism that American political and cultural life can come out of this. But on the other, it seems that politics these days is almost broken by the impulse for power through performance. As one author says about our current times, people used to seek a microphone in order to gain power and make a difference. Now, people seek power in order to gain a microphone and be heard. Now, of course, not all people have always sought power to make a difference for good. There was no good old days of American culture and society in which everybody was just seeking uh, power to make a difference for good. And not, but not all power is bad power. Of course, sometimes and oftentimes it can be used for good, but history books are full of the pursuit of power and the consolidation of power for the benefit of the powerful. Reading and understanding history is often often more difficult than just categorizing people into two buckets, like the buckets of the goodies and the baddies. Uh, We are, in fact, reckoning with American history in that way right now. There's no such thing as like the goodies and the baddies of American history. And yet, sometimes, it almost can be made that simple. And Luke, in Acts 12, does almost just that. Not because of the good works or the bad works that someone does. That, that's how someone gets separated into the right kind of bucket. But a, what separates a person into the good or the bad bucket is a person's disposition before God. Or, contrary, their disposition against God. How does this person understand himself in, the, in light of who God is? That is the question that Luke is addressing here in Acts 12. And it is the question each of us must ask and answer for ourselves. That is, who is the ultimate authority in the universe? Is it me or is it God? And so we're going to think about these kinds of dispositions by thinking through their three related forms of power. That of opposed power actual power or actual power and then pretend power. So opposed, actual and pretend power. So first of all, in verses one through five, that of opposed power, we we read in verse one that about that time, Herod, the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, about what time? What, what, is, what, what time are we talking about that Luke is mentioning here? Well, around the time that Saul and Barnabas are in Antioch teaching and ministering to the growing church there that we thought through last week in chapter 11. But now who's Herod? Luke just kind of starts talking about Herod like we should know who he is. And if you thought the amount of Antioch in the Bible was confusing, well, just try to keep all of the Herods straight. I would love to give you like a big old cultural and religious history here, but unfortunately we can't do that. But this Herod is not the same Christmas story trying to kill baby Jesus Herod. That is Herod the Great. This Herod's, the Herod from chapter 12, Acts 12, uh, his grandfather, Herod the Great, is the one of the Christmas story. 
This is his grandson. This Herod is called Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa is also not the another different Herod who was the one who beheaded John the Baptist or the same guy who Jesus was sent to by Pontius Pilate. That's Herod Antipas, who is Agrippa, this Herod Agrippa's half-brother. And this Herod, Herod Agrippa, is not the same Herod that Paul will be brought before in Acts 25 and 26. That's Herod Agrippa II, this Herod Agrippa's son, sometimes just called Agrippa. Are we clear? There's at least four Herods that take place in the gospel story and in uh, the book of Acts. But this Herod Agrippa, much like his grandfather and his half-brother in the gospel accounts, is a puppet king of the Roman Empire. As long as Herod keeps the Jewish population submissive to Rome so that Rome never really has to even think about what's going on in the backwoods of Palestine, then Agrippa, this Herod, gets to keep his power. And apparently, he's a little worried that this Jewish submission is, sleep, is, is beginning to slip. He's, he's beginning to lose his power. He, so he has uh, James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. One of, one, of the, one of the sons of thunder, if you remember them from the Gospels. Uh, Herod has James killed by the sword, not with stones like Stephen. Uh, you would stone someone in Jewish culture for like religious crimes. But he was killed with a sword for political crimes. Herod is seemingly worried that this new movement of the way, that these Christians were becoming a threat to his power, that his kingdom was beginning to slip. And so we're going to, as we'll see, he, he treats James almost like a trial balloon. It's like if George III showed up in the colonies in like 1776 and he had like, I don't know, Alexander Hamilton or John Jay or some other more less prominent founding father executed for treason. And depending on how that went over with the people, both in his country and then his his. Uh, like in the colonies and back in England, then George could go for Washington or Jefferson, go for the head of the snake. In this execution of James as a trial balloon, it goes really well for Herod. Not only is it probably going to go over well in Rome, but Luke tells us in verse three that it pleased the Jews as well. So it's like the colonists are actually happy that Hamilton was, was executed. So now the king just swoops in for Washington. He arrests Peter also. Now, just make note for just a moment that Luke is hammering us over the head over and over again that it is the days of unleavened bread. It is the time of Passover. So we'll just file that away for now. Now, Luke doesn't explicitly tell us what Herod's plan was for Peter, other than Herod was going to bring him out, assumingly for public execution. We read later that the Jews were really afraid of what was going to happen, or the, the church was really afraid of what was going to happen. But... The church had to have thought that this was it for Peter in his arrest. They've just seen, seen what happened to James, who was killed. Maybe they even know about what Jesus had told Peter in John 21 about the way in which Peter would one day die. Undoubtedly, Peter, as he's sitting here in his prison cell, he's replaying that morning, that morning on the beach around the campfire where Jesus was roasting fish, restoring him to himself, but then telling him of the way in which he would die. He's got to think that this is it. But the church has not given in to some like inevitable outcome of execution. Verse five, we read that they continued in earnest prayer for him. They know that no prison cell, no puppet king, no power is stronger than the mighty hand of God. Maybe, maybe they were praying through Isaiah or through many of the Psalms 
of God releasing the prisoners, freeing the captives. Maybe they were remembering the words of Jesus himself, who quoting from Isaiah said, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Maybe they're thinking, yes, yes, this is the time Lord Jesus set him free. And yet with the execution of James still fresh in their memory, Maybe they were also perhaps remembering the courage of someone like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, praying that Peter would respond like they did when they told Nebuchadnezzar, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So perhaps they're thinking, Remembering James's execution, but also remembering what Jesus has said, that whatever God in his wisdom decides, we will trust him and please help Peter trust in you, O Lord. And so Herod, like Nebuchadnezzar before him, along with Pharaoh in Exodus or King Cyrus in the book of Isaiah, so many uh, of the antagonizing kings in the Old Testament, and in fact, so many of Israel's kings, as well as the other Herods in the Gospels and in Acts, this Herod has placed himself in a seat of opposed power, of opposition against the mighty hand of God. He has ignored Gamaliel's advice from chapter 5 to leave this new movement of Christianity alone, because if it is not of God, it will fail. But if it is of God, you won't be able to stop it. In fact, you might even be found opposing God. But Herod doesn't care about any of that. If he is threatened, if his power is threatened, then the threat has got to go, even if the threat is that of a work of God. Even if God is the threat, it's got to go. Herod is a power. Herod is a power that is opposed to God's power, an opposed power compared with, and now secondly, what we see in what happens to Peter, that of actual power. Verses 6 through 17, actual power. Beginning in verse 6, we find that Peter is imprisoned. He is sleeping behind two soldiers, bound with chains, locked in. And suddenly, behind the locked doors, an angel appears to Peter. Angels, or messengers, as their name literally means, messengers of God. They have been playing a fairly regular role in the past few chapters, appearing to Philip in chapter 8, to Ananias in chapter 9, to Cornelius in chapter 10. And perhaps it's not totally uh, coincidental that after this chapter, angels really began to take a back seat to the role of the apostles as the messengers of God's kingdom. But for now, they have not quite taken that back seat. Surprisingly, though, or maybe not, the angel, he doesn't like gently crouch down next to Peter, uh, like a mother waking up her son, stroking his hair until he gently wakes up. No, verse seven, we read that the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. Now, we don't know if that's a kick, a punch, hitting him with some other object. But either way, the angel strikes Peter, tells him to get up. It's time to get out of here. And the following scene then is crazy. The chains fall off of Peter's hands and apparently the prison door just opens. It doesn't appear like the guards are sleeping anything, but just that they don't notice that the door has opened and Peter walks out. Peter and the angel, they make their way down the Jerusalem streets where they then get to an iron gate of the old temple mount wall uh, of the inner city. That, that gate, that this iron gate, it still exists in the inner uh, courts, the inner city of Jerusalem, the old city of the temple mount. But you can only enter that iron gate today if you are a Muslim. But this gate, opening to the rest of Jerusalem, 
it, when Peter and the angel approach it, it just swings open by itself. It seems so surreal and impossible that Peter actually, he just doesn't think it's real. He thinks it's a vision. Maybe like the pigs in a blanket vision that he had back on the roof in Joppa. Maybe this, maybe God is just showing him some, some crazy thing. Maybe, who knows, he's supposed to interpret this like he was to interpret the, the, the sheet falling from the heavens. But after he and the angel go through the gate and are making their way down a new street, the angel just leaves him, we read. He just disappears, I guess. And in verse 11, we read that when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. The angel of the Lord has come. The captives have been freed. Now, we mentioned Passover earlier. Here's the thing. Here's the thing with Herod and Passover. In his descriptions, Luke seems to be not so subtly connecting this story of Peter with the story of Jesus's trial and crucifixion. It's Passover time. It was a different Herod at Jesus's Jesus's Passover and execution, but the same namesake of a puppet ruler is here, and there is still a a sham trial. Initially, there are four squads of Roman soldiers guarding Peter, perhaps reminding us of the four Roman soldiers who divided Jesus's coat clothing as they gambled it away. We then see Peter sleeping in the dark behind a closed door being guarded behind two Roman soldiers on the outside. Peter very much experiences a resurrection of sort, new life from certain death, led out by angels and light. As we'll, and as we'll see, then the, the resurrection is observed first by a female witness. But as we've thought about before throughout Acts, this, all of this isn't just like some kind of a theological where's Waldo. Like every time we open the Bible, we ought to be just looking for anything that just even remotely reminds me of Jesus. Like, should I be doing the same thing as I read the news? Should I be doing the same thing as I eat a bowl of soup? And you know what? These noodles very much remind me like an empty tomb or I see the face of Jesus in my tortilla or something. Should we be doing that? No. Luke has theological motive here for connecting the lives of Jesus, Jesus's people to the life of Jesus himself. Jesus is the head. They are the body. While they are living and suffering in the world, they are connected. They are united in the world to Christ who is in heaven, seated with him in the heavenly places of victory. Now, it doesn't always end in powerful victory and triumph over worldly powers. It certainly didn't for James. And it won't ultimately for Peter, who, as tradition has it, will be crucified in an even more excruciating way than his Lord was. But in this being united to Christ, in their story becoming his, in his story becoming theirs, we are learning and we are seeing that triumph comes through loss, that light comes through darkness, that joy comes through suffering, and that power comes through weakness. As it was for Christ, so it will be for his people. And this is perhaps what Paul is thinking through in 1 Corinthians 1, as he starts this huge confrontation of the divisions and the disunity that's found in the Corinthian church because of pride and because of the pursuit of power. Paul reminds them in 1 Corinthians 1 that for the word of the cross is folly, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God to align yourself your entire way of life, the entire way that you view the world and your life to align all of that with death is seemingly so stupid. 
to lean more and more into humility, to press more and more into the death of your old fleshly habits, the death of your old fleshly impulses and appetites. All of that feels counterintuitively dumb and foolish, stupid. But then Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 1 to say, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring, thing, to, bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Weakness. And humility feels foolish and dumb. But what is actually dumb is humans trying to clamber up social ladders of power and as they try to build towers to heaven as a monument to themselves. A monument to human pride that is no more lasting and important than a sandcastle. All of us, whether Herod or Peter, whether high or low in the world's eyes, all of us are here one day, then gone and forgotten. But actual power is securing yourself to one who is beyond, behind the curtain of immortality, beyond the veil of sin and death and corruption. Now, we in the West, where traditional religious affiliations are becoming squishier and squishier or beginning to evaporate altogether, we in the West, we are no less religious we are no less looking for something to outlast us than any created human being that has ever lived. And 2020 actually has revealed, and now moving on into 2021, that we are more religious than ever. Many of us are not ill-motived. We understand injustice and wickedness in the world. And so we all desire some sense of like an end times form of reckoning. The thing is, though, that we just kind of want the right sandcastle tower to be built, or the wrong one to be torn down. We can look hard on the evils of all of the Americans out there blowing past most of the evil in here. Thank you, God, that I am not like others. This week I read someone who said, speaking about media culture, but really just speaking about the kind of cultural air that we all breathe, she wrote, the, the intent of many in the media today is to humiliate others. Strip them of dignity, reveal their pathetic fallibility, all to confirm a worldview in which they are good and their perceived enemies, for reasons personal and political, are bad. The goodies and the baddies. And so Americans of all kinds of hopes, all kinds of tribes and ideologies or political leanings, perhaps even ourselves included. We want all wrongs to be righted through the accumulation of power or stopping the wrong people from accumulating power without any of the humble, foolish weakness of the cross of Christ. So we get excited about owning the libs or triggering the snowflakes or Christian YouTube videos where the, like the thumbnail is like, watch this atheist get destroyed, shaming and smashing the MAGA conservatives, whatever it is, whichever direction it is pointed, all of it is ungodly. And it is so far from the way of Jesus. It is the way of Herod. It is the very air that we breathe. Trying to 
make sure that the right kind of power is achieved and the wrong kind of power out there is stripped. Now, I've jumped the gun in thinking about politics and power before we get back to Herod, but the kind of humble, unassuming, and spiritual power that God is working through the resurrection of Jesus and here in Acts 12 in Peter is actual, lasting, and transformative power. Now, that's not to say that Christians shouldn't care about politics or the passionate pursuit of justice, but that we are realistic and that the ultimate reckoning and that the righting of all wrongs will never be fully accomplished in this age. Each generation will bring new evil, sometimes wearing the same old masks, sometimes wearing new ones. But the point is this, that even if this particular American experiment ends, just like Herod's did, just like Rome's did, If America is no more tomorrow or in a thousand years, Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. The kingdom of Christ will be just fine without Washington, D.C. and the American Constitution. In fact, the kingdom of Christ will be that way for eternity. Not to mention the like explosive growth of the church in China and in Southeast Asia. And would you like to know the country that has the fastest growing evangelical church in the world? Wait for it. The country with the fastest growing evangelical church in the world, Iran. Praise the Lord. Despite opposition against Jesus, despite this kind of opposition against Peter, our brothers and sister in China and Iran and all over the world, as Luke says here at the bottom of chapter 12 and verse 24, the word of God is increasing and multiplying. Praise God. This kind of Opposed power has nothing against the actual power of the word of God. But back to Peter. He's out of prison, but he's not out of danger. He's a well-known fugitive, so he makes for the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, who is about to become a more prominent character throughout the book of Acts. And Peter knocks on the door of the outer gate, and only a servant girl named Rhoda is outside to hear his knock. And Rhoda can't believe it. Peter isn't dead. He's not in prison. He's here. So she runs inside to tell everyone. But just like in Luke 24, where Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the other women who were with them, they, we, we read in Luke 24, they, they ran and told these things to the apostles, but their words seemed to them, seemed to the apostles, like an idle tale. They did not believe them. And so in the same way here, the folks of this house say, you are out of your mind, Rhoda. Apparently it wasn't the measure of their faith that released Peter from prison, but the power of God. But Rhoda insists, he's here, he's actually here. And they respond with, it is his angel. Now, we're not going to bog down here on this response, uh, but just to let you know, the whole theology and understanding that everyone has like a personal guardian angel, it comes from right here. There's, we we think, uh, a cursory reading of this, that they're saying, well, Peter's angel, he must be outside. So like Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life, and all that comes from right here. But we should always be careful about forming a like theological category from just one passing reference that is actually pretty unclear. This seems to be pretty unclear what's going on here. They seem to be just trying to get her to shut up. I mean, if it were an angel outside, if it were Peter's guardian angel outside, you'd think that they'd be pretty interested in going outside and getting an update from this angel. Of all the options that I've read through this week, I I think what's most likely is that they're saying, Rhoda, he must be his spirit. Maybe like when Saul sees Samuel back from the grave. 
In Acts 23, Paul uses spirit and angel kind of in the same categories. Like the casual and indifferent dismissiveness of the folks in the house. Like you'd think that even if it were Peter's dead spirit back from the grave or something, you'd think that they'd want to go outside and see that just like they want to see his guardian angel. So all of that likely suggests that they're probably meaning something like, oh, sweetie, you see someone outside who looks like Peter. Poor thing. She, she really does want Peter to st- be, still be alive. She's just taking it so hard, isn't she? Meanwhile, though, Peter's still outside knocking, fearing for his life. He's like, you got to be kidding me. Will someone please outside? And they finally do come outside and they are amazed. Back from the grave, he is, but not in spirit form, in bodily form. But he makes them be quiet. They're being too loud. He's a, he's a well-known fugitive. And then probably confusing them, just like when Jesus returned from the grave, all we read is that Peter departed and went to another place. That's it. We thought that he'd be trying to knock to come in and get off the streets, but he just told them that he was back and then he departed. We don't know where. But the power that has freed Peter and then kept him on the road as a powerful witness to the mighty acts of God is actual power. Kings, governments, structures of power cannot stop the advance of the gospel. Pilate, Herod, it doesn't matter. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, the word of God cannot be bound. What privilege and joy comes from living in and then speaking about the freedom that Christ has accomplished and then invited us into. Though you were not bound, there was no one preventing your testifying to the mighty acts of God. Is the word of God bound in your own heart? Is it bound from coming out of your mouth? Fearfully or unnecessarily putting it under lock and key, putting the gospel that has made you free, once again bound and imprisoned. But Paul says in Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the explosive power of God of salvation that is just waiting to come out to be opened and loosed rather than held back and captive. But all of chapter 12 is one narrative unit. It is a contrasting of two characters, a sandwich of Herod around the humble imprisoned power of God through Peter. Luke takes us back to Herod now. So lastly, now we're going to consider Herod's pretend power. He had an opposed power, but now we're going to find out that that opposed power was actually not power at all. It's just pretend. So we read this in verses 18 and 19. Now when the day come, had come, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. This is a tale of two kingdoms and a tale of two kings. Think back when Peter had failed his king back in Luke 22. What did Jesus do with him? Jesus pursued him with grace. He welcomed him in mercy. He restored him in love. Doing all of that through his death in the place of Peter. When these soldiers fail their king in Acts 12, what does Herod do with them? He condemns them in anger. He executes them in fury. Their death in place of Peter. Here is a vengeful and out-of-control king who only cares for himself, contrasted against Peter's king who's, who cares for the good of others. 
Here it is also contrasted with Jesus' people who in Antioch in chapter 11 heard about famine and the need for food and they gave of themselves freely and generously. But here in verse 20, the people of Tyre and Sidon, they come to Herod asking for help and for food and he becomes angry with them. All of this is setting the stage for the end of Herod in which we read in verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus is a a Jewish historian. He's not a Christian, but he goes even into further description on the death of Herod. Josephus said that these robes that Herod put on and was wearing were like reflective silver robes so that he was actually shining like a sun. And all of this gets the kind of response from the people that Herod was after. He wanted, he was trying to elicit, and he received their worship, their elevation of him. Now, I titled this section Pretend Power because all I can think of is like a small child pretending to be a king, putting on the costume, expecting everyone in the house to just play along with his fantasy. But nothing is real. It's fantasy. It's all pretend. But this is no like, ha ha, funny game of pretend. No, this is wickedness of the highest order. Placing himself as a god, either equal to, or likely in his own mind, above that of God, the creator. And Herod is struck down. One commentator thinks perhaps, eaten from the inside by intestinal roundworms. Do not Google intestinal roundworms this week. It's terrifying. Perhaps that's what happened. We don't quite know what's happening here in his death, but it is in stark contrast. Stark contrast where we saw earlier the angel of the Lord strike Peter and make him get up to life. And now an angel of the Lord strikes Herod down to death. Again, with the Passover in mind, the angel who brings life to those who humbly trust in the power of God's promises in Egypt. And the same angel, the same striking, brings death to those who proudly trust in the pretend power of their own arrogance. Again, not, not buckets of the goodies and the baddies but separation of those who are trusting in the power of God's righteousness through the forgiveness of sin, through the shedding of blood to those who are trusting in self-elevation, self-worship, the accumulation for more and more of their own power. Unless we think that what happens is another angry and out-of-control king responding with violence, God responding in this kind of of out-of-control judgment and striking down this wicked king, It's not. We should actually hope that God would respond in this way. We should actually hope that God is actually a God of justice who will vindicate the murdered, who will vindicate the wrongfully imprisoned, who will care for and actually provide for the hungry and the disadvantaged. And that that though God doesn't always act in a direct and in the moment kind of judgment like this, but that It is actually for our good and for our hope that it is a good thing that God will not ultimately excuse evil and wickedness, but just kind of a, oh, it's okay. We ain't going to smile here. And you killed so many people and exploited your entire country, but no big deal. We should not hope for a God like this, but that in perfect righteousness, he will judge evil. 
not to get really heavy. If you've been following the news of the last few weeks or months, at Ravi Zacharias's funeral in May, there was testimony after testimony after testimony of thankfulness to God for his lifetime of what appeared to be a humble and faithful ministry. Just hearing those testimonies must have made the skin crawl of his countless victims. Since most of those victims themselves were Christians, it must have shaken their faith in the Lord. It must have done such psychological and emotional and spiritual and physical damage to themselves. In Thursday's most recent update, Christianity Today quoted Ravi, who a year before he died, was imploring his listeners to live consistent lives of public and private. He said this, he said, those of you who have seen me in public have no idea what I'm like in private, but God does. God does. And that's right. God does. And our God is not mocked. God is saving a people to himself and for himself that they might become like him, that they might become more humble, more gentle, more kind, more loving, more caring for others as they seek to serve others and not exploit them. And while we can lament the abuse of power, while we can rightfully become angry at those who would use the name of Jesus not to serve but to exploit, Jesus says that we must not respond with a thank you, God, that I am not like those other sinners out there. Thank you, God, that I am not like all of those evil or wicked exploiters of power out there. But Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Help me not to presume that this, that I am not too far away from that myself were it not for your grace, were it not for the ministry and the work of the local church in my life. That my name and my ministry, that my job or my title or whatever it is, my family, my respectability in the community, none of that is what makes me right before you, O Lord, but only the work of Christ on my behalf. That self-reflection, humility, forgiveness connects us to a real and actual resurrection power, not a pretend one. I want to leave you with something from one of my favorite Christian apologists, a British guy named Glenn Scrivener, who recently was talking about full and final judgment. I've shared this with many of you over the past two weeks because it's so good, but he says this, what happens when you die? The Bible has a shocking answer. You're dead already. You have a biological life, certainly. Your heart is still beating, but spiritually, the human race is already perishing. We are cut off from our life source in God. We're like a Christmas tree. Think of a Christmas tree, chopped down from a pine forest, but now dressed up in decorations and surrounded with family and food and fun. The tree is dead, but it's perishing. And at some point in January, we just chuck it out. And the Bible says that's the human race. We are spiritually cut off from God, disconnected, perishing. And it doesn't matter how much we dress ourselves up in the decorations of religion or, or morality. It doesn't matter how much we surround ourselves with family and food and fun. We're perishing. And unless we are reconnected, we will go on perishing forever. But Jesus is the true life source who came to reconnect us. If we receive him, we begin eternal life, even now, then when our biological life ends and our heartbeats stop, we will face Jesus in judgment. At that point, there will be an eternal confirmation. If we have been reconnected spiritually to, the, to Jesus, our life source, then we receive his eternal resurrection life. If we face him separated, 
we will remain in disconnection, a Christless eternity. But remember, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The united life of the Christian to Christ, to actual resurrection power. What a savior and what a gospel. And it is this Savior who welcomes and beckons all of us in our weakness to him when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the resurrection power that he has come to give us and to reconnect us to. Christ Church, I... I'm praying that you are growing and learning and being more and more uh, filled and empowered by that resurrection power each day. Let me pray for our week now, and that, that might be so. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us, we sinners. Help us not to presume upon your grace, but knowing it and trusting in it. Help us to find full assurance and comfort and welcoming love in your grace. Help us to swim deeply in it. Lord Jesus, we pray that you might, beyond the veil, securing us finally and fully, be pulling us in closer and closer home, into glory, where we will be finally and fully rid of this fleshly body, rid of this fleshly um, desire and impulse for self and exploitative power. Help us to become more and more humble, more and more identifying with the foolishness, the folly of the cross of Christ. Help it to cast a deeper shadow into every nook and cranny of our life, we pray. And we do pray these things in Christ the King and in his name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.